Welcome to Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast from a non-Trekkie perspective. I'm joined by my usual co-host, Matt. Hello, Spotlighters. And I am Liam, and we are not joined by Paul today because he's just had a second baby. A sequel. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, he unfortunately could not join us today, which is a real shame because this is a very, very special <laughs> oh, it is. episode of Spotlight. This is... Officially, our hundredth podcast. So, my God, sir! If you're looking at the numbering on the actual episode, it probably won't say it's the hundredth one. I mean, it's nearly episode like fifty of the normal main episodes. Well, this would be a supplemental. This would be a supplemental for sure. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, so literally, because we've divided the show into normal episodes, supplementals, on screen, spotlight the movies, the numbering is all over the place. But officially. This is actually our 100th podcast, and that seemed like something that should be marked with a little drinky drink. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, so, and, a, and a weird-ass episode topic. Uh, and is, a weird-ass episode is. topic. Did, did, did you ever think we'd make it to 100, Liam? Uh, no. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, like um, literally, when we set out to do this, you will remember the first couple of episodes always described as a 13-film mission because we started out with the movies, the Star Trek films running through all them. And the plan always was to literally just work our way up to the new film, like basically to do the 13 films, and then when the new film came out, do that. Of course, that never fucking happened. (laughs) We're still still waiting for the 14th Star Trek movie. But we ended up continuing the show. uh, Currently, there seems to be no end in sight. So It's been been a nice couple of milestones because, of course, we hit our real five-year mission back in, like, August 2021, basically. Yeah, last year. That was five years of the pod and now uh, nearly a year on episode 100. Yeah, this is, yeah, yeah. So this is that, well, yeah, not episode 100, but um, the 100th podcast. But that means we get to have multiple anniversaries, <laughs> essentially, which means multiple bottles of bubbling, which yes. is what we've got here. We've well, got I mean, we always start out opening with, as with, we booze, speak. with booze on the show. So. We did, we did. I yeah. remember in the very first episode, Paul actually says that we're going to be pairing a different bottle of wine <laughs> with each Star Trek movie. I think we went off that kind of like plan within like two episodes. We have many times tried to pair at least a sort of booze with like <laughs> yeah. you know what we're doing so we have had like uh was it cardassian sunrise cocktails yeah yeah uh with one episode we also had some other cocktails there was the, uh the, 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 the chateau picard wine yeah greg. yeah 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 greg brought some chateau picard from his wedding we had some uh some bendic uh cucumber patch cocktails <laughs> for into darkness we brought some bourbon for Star Trek Five Far yeah. Frontier, with the beans. Uh, along with the beans. Yeah, so there, there has been lots of... We basically... What we're saying is, this podcast needs more fucking booze. <laughs> we need to be pissed more on this podcast. So, here we go. We've got a lovely bottle of Prosecco. It's a great year, 2021. <laughs> uh, great on there. 
So this is Canty Prosecco. I'm gonna open it now, live, oh God. on mic. Oh, there it is. Uh, yeah. Wonderful. Pour yourselves a drink, guys. Yeah, pour yourselves join a drink in, and join us our in our celebration for 100 podcasts. Yeah. And thank you so much if you've been listening to the podcast from the very first episode. Holy shit, yeah, let us know. All the way through. I mean, God, yeah. If there's anyone who's made it all the way through here, I mean, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah. But thank you so much. Right, there we go. Right. Chin chin. Cheers, sir. A fine vintage. Live long and prosper. <laughs> so, on to what we're actually going to be discussing in this very special 100th podcast. We wanted to do something quite individual and different for this episode. So, we kind of wrapped our brains. We came up with a few ideas. Mm -hmm. But, what we decided to go with... Is to watch the motion picture 100 times in a row. Oh, well, no. I mean, that, <laughs> that, that that's used as torture in the Russian gulag, <laughs> I've heard. But... What we decided to go with was something that really demonstrated that we are still, after all these years, the Star Trek podcast and the non-Trekking perspective. Because what we decided to examine for this very special episode is four Gene Roddenberry-created TV pilots for other shows other than Star Trek, which he made in between the cancellation of Star Trek The Original Series and Star Trek The Motion Picture coming out. So within around a 10-year like period, he made these four, or developed these four shows, and basically tried to get another series off the ground that wasn't Star Trek. Uh, so these four we're going to be looking at today are Genesis 2 from 1973, The Questor Tapes from 1974, Planet Earth from 1974, and Spectre from 1977. So, yeah, Gene Roddenberry, knowing that Star Trek was now essentially off the table once the original series got canned, attempted to develop some other ideas. And there were actually other ideas that he developed as well, which we'll get into uh, later. But these were the four that actually originated as pilots in between the end of the original series and the motion picture. Of course, somewhere between this, you also get the animated series as well. Uh, but obviously, he wanted, you know, the animated series. He, I know it's got his fans and everything like that, but it was essentially a bit of a kind of step down for kind of Star Trek at the time. I think he wanted to get back on prime time, yeah. like proper live action kind not, of show. Not, not the big boom time for animated spin-offs back in the 70s. No, no, Or ones no. that were going to be seen by the general audiences. I mean, yeah, God. exactly. So he wanted There's no something. Netflix special, so... Yeah, yeah, he wanted something to take off in the same way as Star Trek did. I suppose... <laughs> and like, he tried... Uh, he, he tried, he, he tried and tried he again. Trying. And that is what we're going to explore today. We thought it would be a really interesting thing to look at because, obviously, with this part of the show, has always been that when we look at a different iteration of Star Trek, we don't always know if it's going to be something that we're going to continue to kind of watch and enjoy because we might watch it, not like it, and just be like, we're out. Like, that's <laughs> always been the thing of the show. Of course, I came close. Ooh. Close, you might remember, was yes. Star Trek Lower Decks. You scum. Uh, where, yeah, in season one, I really was not sold on Star Trek Lower Decks at all. And I threatened to walk <laughs> from... To end this whole thing. Yeah, threatened to walk from season two and not come back for the season two episode. God. If it was Lower Decks season two that caused the death of the show, I'd be like, my God, <laughs> come on, we have done worse. Oh, not the entire show, but like literally... <laughs> 
like I was like, yeah, maybe you know, maybe I won't turn up for season two episode. In the end, I did, and season two was a marked improvement. It's like I'm sure we've said everyone has their Star Trek in the same way that everyone has their Star Trek that absolutely is not for them. Exactly, exactly. And now there's certainly enough yeah. Star Trek yeah. to be like, have every a show for every single person. Yeah. And the good thing is about these uh, four failed pilots is, well, the clues in the name, they failed, so we don't have to watch anything else. <laughs> well, exactly, but this is the thing. One of the things we wanted to find out with this is, with each of these, take a look and be like, would we have would watched we have, Or would we have greenlit? Yeah, well, yeah. If yeah, if we were, if we we're like, were come the, on, Gene, give us your news. Exactly. Shit. If we were the studio execs that Gene was showing this pilot to, would we have gone? Yeah, okay, go ahead. Here's the money. Go then, <laughs> go make the rest of this series because we want to see it. Would that have happened, or would we have gone on your fucking bike, Roddenberry? Get the <laughs> fuck out. Get back to Star Trek. <laughs> Never darken our tours again. So many of these are Star Trek in veiled other clothing anyway. So it's like, I see what you're doing, Gene. You've got you've got a pool and you're playing in it. We get well, they are mostly sci-fi stories, although, of course, we go slightly off that for Spectre. But we're going to start today with Genesis 2. My name is Dylan Hunt. My story begins the day on which I died. My last look at my world was to be from inside a pressure chamber at NASA's underground laboratory in Carlsbad Caverns. Our goal was the development of a form of suspended animation which would allow our astronauts to make longer voyages through our solar system. It had been my decision that our method was ready to test on a human, so it seemed that any risk should be mine too. I had guided the basic research since being appointed chief of the project on February 14, 1979. By every measurement we knew of, the experiment should have gone perfectly. What we did not know was that a fault, a flaw, existed in the rock strata directly over our heads, and that the slightest ground tremor would be enough to dislodge it. First broadcast on March 23rd, 1973. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a CBS uh, show, so back to the kind of same Homer's Star Trek, uh, written by Gene himself, of course, and directed by uh, John Llewellyn Motley, uh, who's just mostly a kind of standard career TV director. If you have a look at his IDB, he's directed tons and tons and tons of episodes of kind of random generic TV over the years. Uh, starts with the quote, my name is Dylan Hunt and my story begins the day I died. Mm-hmm. And what is the plot here, Matt? Well, I mean, that's a great opening line to kickstart your series. And uh, this is basically Futurama. In that's the, exactly in my yeah, notes as well. In that this is the story of a 20th century man thrown forward in time to a post-apocalyptic future through an accident in his uh, suspended animation um, so we follow, in the late 70s, NASA scientist Dylan Hunt, who's working on this uh, suspended animation project for astronauts. He, he tests it out in this uh, sort of chemically induced hibernation deep sleep chamber. And then while he's there, lo and behold, the lab is buried by an earthquake. Oops. And by the time he comes out, he awakens in 2133 uh, into a chaotic post-apocalyptic world where there's been an event called the Great Conflict, which was the World War Three that, that Gene often kind of alludes to in in Trek history as well, um, which destroyed most of civilization. And now various new sort of factions of people have popped up over over the world. So 
So certainly a good prospect for a series to come out of this. You know, you've got your world building in immediately, your kind of lore and your history. And this pilot, you know, we say pilot, these are all basic TV movies. This one's 74 minutes long. Really kind of dives into the origins of everything. Uh, like you say, I noted that as well, the whole World War Three thing, which is very similar to the timeline in Star Trek that we know of, that there was this kind of World War Three. that we have to get past that to get to the utopia of the Star Trek world. So we've got another war to come, guys. I know, I mean, you know, it's threatening to happen every day, isn't it? You know, we've got to get past that first. So it's, it's following a similar kind of futuristic trajectory as Star Trek. And like you say, the plot, I noted that as well, is very Futurama. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also quite reminiscent of Space Seed, the Star Trek original series episode that introduced Khan in it as well. It's quite reminiscent of that uh, because there's a lot of that kind of... Do you remember in that episode? You've seen Space Seed. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that episode? They're going like, all oh, the men of that time. Differently, and there's a bit of that in this and in Planet Earth, which is obviously a similar idea. Gene oh, has a yeah. thing, we could say. Yes, yeah, <laughs> definitely. And here we have Dylan Hunt, as you say, played by Alex Cord with a um, very good mustache. Yeah, and by good, I mean 70s. Yeah, what continues to trouble you, Dylan? That they serve us so well? It's their damned eagerness to please, they love us. Just as an animal pet returns love given it? They're humans, Lyra. Astrid, are you happy here? Happy, Master? I was ill and starving until I came here. They're fortunate humans, Dylan. And they recognize it. So, our leading man, he's shit, isn't he, basically? He's, he's terrible. Yeah, really awful. Like, sorry, Alex Cord, <laughs> if you're still out there. We watched the, the last of these pilots together not a few hours ago, and I noted that, you know, this really is the era when you could just cast sort of very stuffy, old-looking men. They may have been their early 30s, but they all look about late 40s, early 50s. Oh, yeah, he was probably 23. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this is, you know, meant to be an exciting new TV series to get people in, and, like, you know, anything these days done similar, it would be the Castle Riverdale. just be a CW, hot, hot young crowd, whereas, you know, this is a different era, of course. But even under that, guys, this guy seems very of the period. I just... I just don't like the character. That's the thing in terms of... Because there's so many things with Dylan Hunt in this. And Dylan Hunt is a character who we'll explain later. Gene came back to many times. So, you know, he was obviously really into this character. But, like, straight away at the beginning, he's, like, so, so fucked up by his transition from 1979 to 2133. He's like almost like, kind of looks like he's had like a stroke or something. <laughs> like, you know, in like the hospital bed. Intravenous. Intravenous. To inject. Inject an alien substance into his body. There is nothing like that here. I was watching, I was like, oh, this is funny. Imagine if, like, 
uh, Chris Evans as Captain America had woken up like that at the end of the first Avenger. So Captain America first Avenger just ended with him like in bed, drooling, <laughs> being fed like porridge by a nurse. Oh, what a hero. You know what I mean? And that's like, yeah, there you go. Captain America will return in the <laughs> Avengers. Like, yeah, Once he learns how to walk again. Because, yeah, that's what it seemed like. And then he seems to get kind of perked up by the... Uh, there's a, a woman who's like a mutant. She's like undercover in the Pax Society who are made up... The Pax Society is like made up of all kind of ancestors of like NASA people, isn't yeah. it? Like scientists and everything like that. So it's all like, you know, it's a complete like utopia of like, you know, science and yeah, experts. They're like the Starfleet of this series. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then she is sort of interloper... Isn't she? Yeah, but, so yeah. she's from the totalitarian regime known as the Tyrannians. I think that's how you say it. Tyrannians? Yeah, some kind of damn mutos. <laughs> yeah, it's like damn mutos. Yeah, so they're mutants who possess greater physical prowess. And uh, yeah, their one identifying feature is that they have double belly buttons. Yeah, double navels. It's like a, I guess that's an easier prosthetic than anything in Star Trek, right? So. Yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, apparently I read something where Gene Moore was saying, oh, it was to like make it less sexy or something like that because the studio oh, his oh, head he's thinking this is mm, like sexy. yeah this is like too much but he's in bed basically and it's still drooling okay? <laughs> like you know when, when suddenly like yeah the the mutoid like woman she like gets naked in, <laughs> she gets like naked in front of him it's basically like oh check out this like i think like you know this like beautiful woman and he, there's a big zoom in on <laughs> his like face, like, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And then that seems to really like perk him up after that. What I found hilarious about this is that Dylan is such a dickhead because he instantly portrays the Pax people <laughs> yeah. just because he's seen a bit of skirt, basically. He's just instantly like, oh my God, she is hot as fuck. Right. <laughs> Forget these fucking Pax losers. I'm off. It's because the the Pax people are quite like prudish, yeah, yeah. aren't they? Quite kind of like, oh, not sure about this. Bunch of like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Because isn't it? There's another woman, isn't there? Like nursing, who's a bit like, oh, men of your time, mm-hmm. obsessed with sex and stuff like that. Like, yeah, you don't like, do that now. And he's like, that's right, baby. Which would make sense if the guy playing Dylan Hunt was like uber jock to all these nerds, which comes into play with Planet Earth later on. But as this guy, it's like. No, no, you fit in with the nerds, mate. Learn, learn, where, learn where you sit. Learn to be a fucking nerd. <laughs> oh, yeah, literally. And he just comes across as a massive dum-dum. Because for me, I'm just like, mate, it's so obvious that her and her people are not the good guys. He's just instantly, like, rejecting his own people. Like you say, you are also a scientist yeah. nerd. He was NASA. Like, yeah. These people are NASA descendants. I'm like, he's acting like he's not with them. Mm. But it's mad because after this, you know, pretty interesting setup, you know, the, the pace of this actual pilot kind of really does grind to a halt. We get this, you know, long tour around the facility and big exposition dumps. And it's it's already hard to kind of tell what the story is outside of this world building. And, you know, for a um, pilot to a series, that's no good. And it's, it's almost like if they'd given him less time for a pilot, he could realise what to focus on. And I don't know if this was just a thing of the time of going, pilots were always feature-length TV movies to start with, and then it messes with the pacing. Well, if you remember, because obviously we went through all of the Star Trek TV series early on in Spotlight history, and you remember we always did the pilot? Yeah. And if you remember the pilots of all of those, like TNG, 
Uh, well, the original series as well, The Cage, uh, they were all feature out. Mm. Like all of those kind of things. I think uh, later on syndication, they might have been split up into like two parters, yeah. but they were like MS3, uh, Encounter at Farpoint, The Cage, Caretaker. They're all these huge feature length pilots, essentially. Yeah. Like, I, mean, yeah. I, I guess it is that kind of more dull 70s pacing for these things because yeah. there is a lot of interesting stuff in here of course and you know the idea that this guy awakens and he's a man out of time and he has you know the Pax people on one side and the uh, Tyrrhenians on the other and he's kind of stuck in the middle knowing what he knows of the past and because he's the only one who's got knowledge of the old nuclear power system so that's where the baddies kind of try and tempt him in to see if they can if he can repair their generator and that be kind of becomes the <coughs> conflict in the last third of you know can uh, this nuclear system come back online and it's you know the whole thing of will history repeat itself? Does mankind ever learn from nuclear disasters and wars and things? And it almost kind of wraps up too tightly for a series. But, you know, there's there are there are a lot of other episode ideas listed on the wiki page of this thing, which is interesting. Because, yeah, as this one goes, I don't know, there's some interesting sort of camp kitschiness to it. We get a really good Star Trek-style judo chop from, uh, I think it's the, the mutant lady. The one who, in my notes, I've written down as looking a bit like Betty Gilpin from, from Glow. There's, like, the costumes they, they wear in Terranium, which are these incredible, like, cape nappy things. <laughs> yeah, I've got a note here. <laughs> I've got a note here saying Dylan shows off a lot of leg. Because <laughs> like, uh, he is, he's got, like, literally his entire leg out. Like, whoa, check this out. Like, yeah. It's the early days of the WWF over here. I think some of the production of this is quite impressive. Like the actual, there's some very like Bond lair sets. 60s yeah, 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 and the actual like tunnel effect. Yeah, they've got this thing where oh, it's like the underground tunnel. Yeah, system. they've got like an underground tunnel system, and they can go go through that. Like that looks quite cool, yep. and they kind of reuse the same effects for the later Planet Earth pilot. And there's like uh, when they first turn up to the Trainian city, there's a big like model of the city or like map painting maybe. And that looks pretty good. Yeah. I mean, you're basically going like, that That one map painting? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Green yeah. light. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean... Yeah, it kind of comes around to the, the sort of moral uh, conclusions that Star Trek often does. Whereas here, it all ends up being about how you shouldn't sacrifice life even in order to save lives. So this... I get, is that a sort of twist for the Pax people? That they've essentially adopted a non-for-the-greater-good attitude? Because he ends up being like, oh, by doing something that kills some people will have a bigger effect on everyone else. And whoever it is, I think it's Pax, being like, no, there's like no sacrifice in life for any reason, even if it works out uh, for the best, which is an interesting kind of... Well, it seems to me that kind of like, you know, they learn a bit to be a bit more human from him and he learns to be, yeah. you know... Because they say this is how that last war happened in the first place, from people trying to do certain things to stop other things and it all yeah, spirals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, like I say, I think a big problem with this is Dylan Hunt. <laughs> yeah. Is Alex Cord specifically as Dylan Hunt because we will see Dylan Hunt played later in a kind of way that's more likeable. Don't get me wrong, I think, you know, I, I think this version of the pilot for this PAX story yeah. is quite, quite a slog. Like I say, I think it's got an interesting setup. Mm -hmm. I think the actual opening when, you know, we had that first line and stuff, I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of interesting. But I think quite quickly it kind of, you know, just goes off the boil and just gets quite 
bogged down in kind of not being particularly interesting. And like with a lot of these, feels over long. Yeah. Like you say, this is very much... I mean, this is not individual this all pilots in those days were these like feature length things they were always like meant to be like a feature length film i think the idea was that basically pilots would be extra long like feature length because if they never made any more episodes they could then sell them off as an individual film ah uh, yes instead um, of just pilots that without the series that follows they're pointless exactly like i think the idea was always well, if we don't go to pilot, we can still use this. It can still be sold internationally. Because if you look at a lot of these, um, they were like screened internationally like years later and stuff like that. And in some cases, actually screened theatrically. That's a weird, like, that's like, a yeah. weird kind of concept, isn't it? The idea of going, oh, do you want to sit down and watch this like film? What is it? Oh, it's for a TV series that never happened. Then why should I care? <laughs> well, I suppose in those days, you've got to remember, it's a lot of people just wouldn't know. Because yeah. you just repackage what you have as a film instead and go, oh, this is a movie. And Whereas now we can look everything up and go, what is this? What's the origin? In those days, people would just gone, eh, whatever. Like, and I think that's just the way it is, kind of thing, with a, yeah. lot, of, with a lot of these. So, you, well, know. you know, you are a network exec, 1973. Okay. Is this green light? It is not a green light. <laughs> not without a recast. For Alex Core, I'd be like, yeah. look, I think maybe this this idea, maybe with some rewriting, it can get there. But like, you know, I think we'll guess, we'll discover later what exactly yeah. happens well, in, in the, that, that way. These are some of the episodes you have now missed out on by not greenlighting this masterpiece because there's a, there's a few lists on the. Get hit me with it, mate. There's a few I'll lists on the wiki. So there's there's one called Robots Return in right. which. In which the advanced computers and sophisticated machinery found on a moon of Neptune by a 1992 NASA expedition has evolved into a new form of robot life and visits Earth in search of the god named NASA. They meet Hunt uh, and consider him a messiah. <laughs> what? <laughs> that so, guy? No, yeah. no, no, so no, no says, I'm not buying into this. So, so some of that store idea was later developed into a motion picture. Um, oh yeah, because yeah, because the VJ thing, yeah. Yeah, 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 and also shares some thematic similarities with the episode The Changeling from the original series. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got one called Poodle Shop, in which Dylan Hunt is captured and put on sale by the females in a strange society where men are treated as domestic pets and traded back and forth for breeding. So purposes. that is basically the plot to Planet Earth, which yep. is the second attempt at this that we'll talk about later. Yep, there's one called The Apartment, where trapped inside 20th century ruins by a mysterious force field, Hunt is catapulted through time back to 1975, where he can be seen as a transparent ghost by the girl living in the apartment there. The bizarre love affair with a surprise twist ending ensues. Well, that sounds weird. And there's, yeah, one, well, there's one called The Electric Company, where Dylan Hunt and his PAX team encounter a place where a strong priesthood holds a society in bondage through the clever use of electricity. The simple inhabitants see the flashes of light and the amplified voices as the sight and sound of God. But Dylan's team ends the dominance of the priesthood and they come up with still better tricks. Yeah, it seems to be the adventures of Dylan and his and his pack slot. So no, no other mentions of the Terranians. Well, a lot of those episodes, I'd say, not all of them, because the, the apartment one's really weird. But a lot of them, certainly ones the societies, like in terms of the female society and the um, religious society, yeah. sound like things that could have been done on Star Trek original series. Oh, yeah. Like, they sound very reminiscent of ideas that you could have easily had Kirk and Spock landing on a planet and kind of discovering yeah, yeah. that size of size. I mean, that last one, yeah, it's, uh, it says it superficially resembles the Trek episode The Return of the Archons. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the apartment one. 
says uh, the basic plot appears later as an unused Star Trek Phase 2 episode as well. So Oh, Star Trek Phase 2, of course, which, yeah, I mean, in amongst all of this, was do, he was also trying to get Star Trek Phase 2 off the ground, which was the cast sequel to Star Trek. That was like original original cast. Yeah. Like going like, yeah, which later a lot of the ideas got filtered through to the movies. Like, you know. Okay. So now do you want to stay on this Dylan Hunt train or are we hopping? Let's elsewhere? let's do it chronological. So we'll return. But they're both seventy four, though, aren't they? The next two. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the other one's first. And I think we need a break from Dylan (laughs) after, you know, the fucking Genesis 2. Because what was that? You haven't... Are you greenlighting Genesis 2? Hell no. Yeah, no, (laughs) definitely not. I've got to say, hearing those episode pitches hasn't changed my mind. The one about the apartment sounds awful. I I haven't seen the TNG episode with there's a ghost in it or something. Uh, Probably, yeah. It's like a famously bad one, I think. Like, it sounds like they're getting to that level already. It's like, this is meant to be filler for your fifth That's season. That's like episode three. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, this yeah, is, our, this like is our walkabout oh, lost man. episode. Just like yeah, so we will return to Dylan Hunt later. But first, we have the Questor tapes. Yeah. As some of you know, it's pretty hard to be serious about today's television. I think one of the uh, funniest incidents that did happen is while we were making a movie of the week that I, I know some of you saw it was called The Quester Tapes. And thank you. I'm delighted you, you got it. Well, for those of you who did not catch that show on television, it, it had a, an interesting story. It, it was the story of an android robot who was outwardly indistinguishable from a human male. Except perhaps that the, the computer mind, the programming of his computer mind made him incapable of hate, jealousy, violence, and other television star qualities. In the original draft of the show, this, this android that we call Quester was searching for the man who had provided his blueprints and, and his parts, uh, essentially uh, the man who had created him, his creator. The robot wanted to know why he had been placed on this planet. 23rd of January, 1974. So... It's really cracking them out. Yeah, only nine months after Genesis 2. So he's got the rejection from Genesis yeah, 2. Presumably he's getting rejected for one and immediately working on another because otherwise he's going to have all these concurrent shows running if they all get picked up. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I presume... I presume he is literally going, oh, this has got rejected. Right, on to the next one. Because he's desperately trying... Who do you think he is? Ryan Murphy? Yeah, he desperately <laughs> trying to get another show. I mean, you know, he's obviously managing to convince people that, you know, he can... It's just like, oh, fool us once, Jim. Yeah, do another... Well, it's, cause it's funny, because obviously Star Trek original series was cancelled. Like, was actually cancelled. But at the same time... I think the fan base for Star Trek was there, like, very fast. And I think, although it was cancelled, because obviously quite quickly they do the animated series. I mean, the animated series starts four years after the uh, original series ends. So they obviously realise there is an audience somewhere for this. Because you kind of go like, oh, Roddenberry getting all these chances with pilots from what was essentially a fellow TV show, but I suppose they must have gone, no, there is there is an audience here. It's obviously a much less crowded playing field in terms of talent and stuff. It's mm. not like today where you can source different talent and voices and writers all over the place. There, back mm. then, it's probably like, yeah, him and Rod Serling are like the ones doing big TV sci-fi. Yeah. So let's yeah. keep giving it to him to try and have another crowd. I suppose so. Uh, so yeah, Questor tapes. So this is written by our pal Rodders. And Gene L. Kuhn, 
who wrote 13 episodes of Star Trek, the original series, uh, including Arena, Ooh. Space Seed, which obviously Ooh. we've talked about already, The Devil in the Dark, uh-huh. plus Spock's Brain, <laughs> which we've talked about before on our Science and Trek episode, uh, directed by Richard A. Collar, uh, who's another kind of TV veteran director, Probably most famous of this for directing the pilot, the original Battlestar Galactica. Oh, wow. Uh, so, you know, that's quite a big claim to fame. I mean, another fascinating thing here, when you're talking about these pilot films that kind of get taken off and have their own lives as a kind of individual film rather than just a pilot, there was a novelization of the Questor tapes. By DC Fontana, obviously an incredibly celebrated Star Trek writer, which was dedicated to Gene Alcoon because he died the year before this was broadcast. Mm. So he literally, it must have been like the last thing he wrote or whatever, and then it got broadcast. But I mean, that's weird, isn't it? A normalization of a failed <laughs> TV pilot. I'm trying to think of modern day infamous TV pilots that never made it to series. They'd be like, I can't wait to read that novelization. Like, whatever that bloody failed Game of Thrones one recently, the Naomi Watts one, so not the Fire and Blood that's coming, but the other one. Oh, no, House of Dragon is the one that's coming. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So there was a previous one. Like, imagine if that just got a novelization. Yeah, what was the other Game of Thrones pilot about? That They, they actually made it, didn't they? They yeah, did yeah, make yeah. it, and it just got scrapped. I'm not sure. I think it was all... I think it, it was... Set. It's the Jane Goldman one, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah it's yeah. all about, like, the long winter or something up at the wall or... Uh, yeah, so this... They spent $30 million on this pilot. Fucking hell. For an, uh, an untitled series whose proof of concept was ultimately scrapped in favour of House of the Dragon, which is coming up. It had Miranda Richardson, Jamie Campbell Bower, Naomi Aki, Naomi Watts. Quotes about the series was, you know, you're looking at a whole different era of Westeros. There's no dragons, no Iron Throne, no King's Landing. Um, and it was going to take place, yeah, during the Long Night, which is the original battle between the humans and White Walkers that culminated in the wall being built and the Night's Watch being set So up. this would be before House of Dragon? I think so. Cool, but it's like, weird that that's just in a vault somewhere, like done. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's like that. There are certain pilots you know of that it feels weird that we're never going to see that yeah. they were actually made. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's almost a weird, actually, maybe a bad example of you know. Oh, imagine this is a book because obviously it all comes from that book series. But imagine like a completely original TV pilot, and HBO have done a few and then scrapped, haven't they? And just imagine someone getting their original idea done. Well, just even the the like I say, the original Game of Thrones pilot. The fact that, that that will exist somewhere, yeah. the original Game of Thrones part that like they scrapped, I, I'd be fascinated to see that, why it was so bad, why they didn't like go, like, we need to refilm completely. Um, what that was like before, because presumably that one is, I think that's the same cast. I think I don't think it's a different cast. I think there's some differences. It's a different Daenerys. Um, right. Few other differences, but I think isn't Dinklage in it? I think. Possibly. Yeah, I think so. I think he was always. I think him. yeah. I think most people are in it. Like I, I think it just. I think maybe it was a different director or something like yeah. that. Like you know, just didn't. God, at that point, imagine like work shooting something for like months, and they go, "Yeah, we'll start again." Like, I'm pretty sure they cost. They they spent some crazy on it. Yeah. And like literally just scrapped it because they were like, "This isn't right." Um, other ones I think of. Uh, that I followed and then got scrapped was the original Powers pilot. Yep. By FX with Jason Patrick. Yep. And Lucy Punch mm-hmm. was going to be Dina Pilgrim and Vinnie Jones was the bad guy. Wow. 
Um, and that got filmed for FX and then got scrapped and then they did it for PlayStation yeah. with Charlotte Copley and stuff, which was shit. Uh, I mean, that's the thing. It's just, I think because that ended up shit, I'm like, I wonder what that original pilot was like. Was it better? Yeah. Because, like, you you've know, got, you do just go... You've got Why the Last Man as well, the original one of that. I think, yeah. I swear, I swear yeah. at least one of those did get shot and dumped. Well, yeah, it was... Well, yeah, I think they did shoot with Barry Keoghan as Why, didn't mm-hmm. they? And then that kind of, like, you know... And again, I mean, I haven't seen the Why the Last Man TV series, but, you know, it got... It got cancelled after a season like you know in terms of it's interesting the decisions that get made and you end up going like oh would it would the original have been worse or better obviously game of thrones you go obviously they made the right decision but with these ones that weren't so successful anyway it makes you get intrigued about the original version and mm-hmm. go like kind of thing yeah yeah it's an interesting thing i think didn't they shoot the beverly hills cop pilot quite possibly with which was sean ryan like show running bizarre like the guy did the shield like doing like Beverly hills cop <laughs> and i think that was like a disaster and didn't happen but yes it is yeah fascinating but yeah the questor tapes so this is robert foxworth as questor who's an android essentially almost played by leonard nimoy yeah. Um, who actually kind of did some like test shoots for the role and everything like that. But Gene ended up giving the role to Robert Foxworth. So he was like, fuck you, Leonard. You know what? I think, I think in this case, that's for the better. Because I think if this had been Nimoy, we would have just been seeing... It would have conflated too much with Spock. Because yes. this Android character... Yeah. I mean, now we look at this character of Questor and go, oh, there's a lot of data in here. Which yes. obviously did inspire a lot in data. And some very specific examples we'll get to as well. But it's like, I think at the time you would have just been like, oh, you know, he's using a Vulcan nerve pinch and talking about logic. I'm just seeing another spot. Yeah, I think you're right. I think actually it was the right decision yeah. to go this, with this Foxworth guy, who is actually great. really good. He's really good. Very good. Unlike fucking uh, Alex Cord or whatever with Din Hunt, uh, the leading man here, Robert Foxworth, is really good because he genuinely goes on like a proper performance journey from being super, super androidy and robotic at the start to becoming more human-like as it goes on. Yeah, well this is, yeah, so this, this series is about Questor, who's this who's this android who's trying to recover, well he's, he's been made with these incomplete tapes essentially, which is a funny idea to think of anything analogue like tapes being used to create a robot with, um, who kind of breaks out of his confinement and goes in search for his creator and purpose, like really good setup anyway. But yeah, you're right, like from the moment we see him, he's he's there in this kind of <laughs> he looks like a human morph. The stuff animation little guy. He's like yes. he's, he's that he's that colouring. Well, yeah, you get to see him go from being all weird and kind of like sex dolly to more human like. Yeah. So the beginning sequence kind of you know it's it's cross cutting between you know the suits talking about what to do and while we see this guy wake up very Frankenstein like he comes off his sort of trolley. And he's, he's, yeah, he's very featureless. And then he's slowly just like moulding himself some ears and a mouth and implanting some hair and making himself more human. And then, yeah, the, the performance from uh, Foxworth here, at the, at the beginning, he's very... Doing the robot, but not, not in a like ham-fisted cliche way, in a genuinely interesting way. And then his speech pattern is very one word per syllable per, per broken up sentences and then it's something that quite subtly changes as he hangs out more with with humans and i think the core of this of this story is the relationship between him uh, and robinson 
played by Mike Farrell, uh, who's kind of one of the guys who built him, who kind of helps him break out and go on this mission, who gets very attached to him. You know, he's very quickly seeing him as a, as a he, not an it. And he's coming into conflict with his sort of governmental superiors. But it's a really interesting, like for me, I don't know if you're the same. I think you might be. This is the most successful of the four. Yeah, of- yeah, yeah. I mean, spoiler. Yeah, this out of the four, I definitely think, yeah, this is the most successful. You know, I still, I still think, you know, if we're comparing, if we're going, would have any of these shows been bigger than Star Trek or even as big? As Star Trek, I think it's got to be a no. None of these, I think, have as strong a concept as Star Trek. Because Star Trek, especially the original series, feels so definitive in terms of laying down the groundwork of so much sci-fi to come. Whereas none of these, these are all kind of smaller ideas, really. But out of the four, I think it's undeniable that as an individual kind of piece of entertainment, this is definitely the one that's strongest. Yeah, well, to me, the other three feel more like a Star Trek offshoot than this does. I mean, Yeah, this feels much more like its own thing, despite the fact that, like we say, I mean, it's literally been acknowledged that Questor, the character, ended up inspiring Data, and you can completely see that, I mean, especially, like, literally, where he actually has a Data line where he says to a woman who apparently in the original version, he did actually have sex with her, but they cut that. And he actually says to her, I am fully functional, which Data will go on to say in The Naked Now, I think it is. From you, Data, you are fully functional, aren't you? Of course, but... How fully? In every way, of course. I am programmed in multiple techniques. A broad variety of pleasuring. Ah. But at any rate, the only, only way that Quester could locate his creator was through a, a very, very lovely woman who refused to talk. Fortunately, the android had been programmed in literature, which included the works of Maupassant, from which he had learned that sometimes the human female will open her mind to a man to whom she has opened other channels of communications. In, in my original script, the android then made love to her. He was programmed for excellence in many areas. <laughs> and he immediately secured the information. I was called to a meeting of the executives. <laughs> and they minced no words. A robot doing it to a woman was absolutely unacceptable. The first thought that popped into my mind was, thank God I hadn't written a gay robot. I really would have been in trouble. <laughs> so he's very data-like. Yeah. But outside of that, that's a character. The actual kind of concept, yeah, it yeah. feels very disconnected from Star Trek. Like Planet Earth and Genesis 2 feel very kind of trying to do, despite them being a different concept, essentially trying to do a Star Trek-y type thing Mm -hmm. uh whereas this and i suppose specter as well which we'll get to later are at least doing something different yeah and and this one funny enough this feels more complete to me as a as a movie yeah whereas it's almost harder for me to think of the individual episode concepts that could come out of this versus something like planet earth or genesis or whatever Mm. but i think what works in this one's favor is you know it is 
it is a very propulsive kind of like mystery and an adventure that these two go on. And then the, you know, spoiler alert, the sort of twist ending is genuinely great, which is, you know, they finally find the creator and we find out he is also an android and they're essentially all this alien race who are here sort of protecting and looking over humanity. And then when they get to the end of their life cycle, they build their own replacement. So the the master, Vaslavik, he'd been sort of broken down a bit by a lot of like nuclear stuff at the time. And so he was dying earlier. And so it all, but he's fixed that in Questor, who's now, you know, there's this ticking clock of the whole episode because he's actually ticking down to his own nuclear explosion, which he needs his creator to essentially stop. But then you find that, you know, that he's, he's now the next one along and he knows his origins and then it all comes down to, I guess the setup for the series is, you know, it's him and Robinson roaming the world, teaching Questor human ways. Well, this is part of the interesting problem where, because this is the one out of all four that came closest to actually becoming a series. Hmm. It actually got a 13-episode green light. But Roddenberry left over creative differences. Nothing ever happened with it. One of the creative differences there was is the uh, XX didn't want the Jerry Robinson character in there anymore. Oh. And they also wanted to ignore the big twist at the end of the pilot. Ah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so that never happened, which seems really weird. Yeah, because without that, you don't have a point for the series. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't have a real reason to go on because, like you say... It's kind of like, well, you've got to give him a reason to become this kind of protector to humanity. And one of the strongest things is the relationship that Questor builds up with Jerry Robinson, uh, who actually does become very emotionally attached to him by the end. Yeah. Uh, one thing that we should know is Walter Koenig is in this, in a small cameo. Didn't Check see him. off himself. <laughs> Did not see him. Uh, apparently, he plays Darrow's assistant, so it's like the creator of Questor. He has two scenes and only one line, the... and has an enormous mustache, which renders him unrecognisable. Robinson's academic records. Yeah. And they want a personality profile on him. Try Washington. Yeah, there isn't much information about other episodes, but like I say, I mean, he did get a 13-episode green light, but perhaps... They had these, like, creative differences, as it were, before anything. God, it's amazing uh, that you'd get that close to something. Agreed, and Agreed, kind of thing, like, you know. It's amazing that you'd get that close to something, and then it all falls through again, and then, like, right, straight back on it, planet Earth. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, yeah. Gene. Um, of course, a lot of this, not only did it influence Data as a character, but even there's a big scene where Questor and Jerry Robinson go to a casino. Yeah. Um, and that whole scene is very reminiscent of data gambling in The Royale, uh, which is an episode of Star Trek Next Generation, the second season, uh, where they go to a casino. So there is obviously a lot here that kind of influenced data. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's still relevant today with, you know, sentient AI and everything going on in that world compared to a lot of the other ideas that are very much rooted in 70s thinking. Mm -hmm. And they did actually attempt to revive this in the noughties a couple of times. Once with a guy who died, who, like, literally there was a guy who was basically the main, like, meant to be the main kind of showrunner kind of thing, and then he died, and so it just kind of the whole project, right. I think, died there. And then actual, uh, I think, Rod Roddenberry, like, the son, took over and tried to make it happen in 2010. It just 
hasn't happened. Like, it's weird. I don't know if you could do it again now because I think a lot of what this show would probably have spoken to has been been done in things like Westworld and a yes. lot a lot of other sci-fi shows that have come out recently actually as well. Um, yeah, it's a little bit now. The idea of the androids have seems a little bit old hat. Yeah. Whereas at that time, the human-like android hadn't really been done that much before. Like, you know, because, I mean, funnily enough, obviously when he starts talking at first, he sounds incredibly robotic, but as it goes on, he becomes more human-like. And certainly by the end, I'd say he's kind of more convincingly human than Data, really, because he, he looks human. He doesn't, yeah. look, he doesn't look uh, in any way like an android kind of thing. By the end, he just looks human. So I think by the end, he kind of passes more. The wiki plot summary kind of makes note of this. We're right towards the end. So basically, John Vernon, the dean from Animal House, he's been kind of chasing them down. and He's he the creator, isn't he? No, no, he's no? he's the guy bankrolling. He's like the oh, just he's, Right, he's just, yeah, he's just so, bankrolling. So he's kind of chasing them down and he, he finds out the truth of everything. So he kind of changes his tune and wants to help out. So he basically takes the transmitter that the military were tracking him by flies off in a plane so they think that's him escaping and sacrifice himself and gets blown up so that yes. they can escape. So as, as you know, Robinson and Cressor are watching this plane get shot down, um, Robinson says that he can't see anything, and Cressor replies saying, I wish that I could not. And uh, it says here, you know, this is notably his first verbal expression of emotion with his first visual expression of emotion occurring when he has his timer made safe. And uh, he smiles at Robinson for the first time there. So even in like the arc of this movie, essentially, yeah, we see him go from off the factory line, orangey blob man, morphing into, literally morphing into human features, acting insanely robotic, and then by the end, starting, you know, learning his purpose, starting to turn a bit, starting to show these expressions of emotion. So it's a wonderful kind of arc for him. Data has many, many series to kind of go through this arc, but he's, he's not someone on a path to becoming human. He's always an android in TNG, whereas this, it feels like... What about my new emotion, <laughs> Well, it's shit. <laughs> um, yeah, whereas here, Questor's kind of journey is essentially to end up with him being passable entirely as human, and that's kind of the point of his... His race, I guess. Yeah, I think that's why, isn't it, that this one feels like an individual story. In terms of, you can see how they could have continued it. Yeah. But it actually does feel like there is an actual arc, mm. like an actual character arc, I think, to the end. Of, so you can go, oh, this is an individual story. Yeah. It's, not, it's not a pilot which is half just world building or half just kind of dull interactions. Mm. There's, there's a propulsiveness to this. Yeah, because it isn't world building, is it? It's character building. Yeah. So that works better as an individual story. So yeah, with our, with our green light or red light, um, I, I would agree that this, even though it works best for me as a, as a standalone, out of these four anyway. Yeah, I would agree that this, just because I think there's an interesting character here and it would have been interesting to see where Questor could have gone. Is Because it, it would have been like having a data spin-off almost. Yeah. Um, and going like, you know, and then you have to develop that character far more. And, you know, the, the journey could have been him just becoming more and more and more human as the storyline goes on, which I think would have been interesting to see. Uh, so, yeah, green light for Questor tapes, I mm-hmm. say. Uh, so we move on to the third of Gene's abandoned uh, pilots. So here... We return to the world of Dylan Hunt. Oh, uh, Dylan so, Hunt. So, 2, Dylan Hunt, you he's back. You should have killed me. Yeah. 
uh, with planet Earth, so this was broadcast on 23rd of April 1974, so literally only three fucking months, three months exactly, since the Questor tape, so he's straight back in, he's trying to get this sound, so uh, this must have been concurrent with Genesis 2, so they must have literally gone, Genesis 2 did not fucking work, let's try again. This is the 22nd century, the land renewed, the air and water pure again. The conflicts of the past are gone. It is a new earth, new peoples and new customs. In some places, bizarre savagery. In others, advanced cities. Everywhere, new challenge and new adventure. And this is also the story of Dylan Hunt, lost in 1979 in a suspended animation accident. Over a century and a half later, in the year 2133, he was found and awakened by the people of this city called Pax, Peace. The one place on earth which escaped the final conflict of the 20th century. The one place on earth where civilization did not perish. Dylan Hunt is one of them now, leader of a Pax science team exploring a much changed world. Part of the Pax dream of rebuilding on earth a new and wiser civilization. Their mission is mankind, rebirth of planet earth. this does happen as we've just been discussing uh, you get pilots where they film a pilot doesn't work they abandon it they shoot another one so I guess this is that in terms of they shot Genesis 2 didn't work but they thought there's enough of an idea here yeah. to be like let's let's give it another run but the weird, and that's what they do the weird thing is with these modern cases is that we never see the original attempt that's the thing yes whereas here this already we do, had, it's we like, do get hey it. audiences that thing that we didn't have faith in it's back yeah so this is written by Gene again, obviously, uh, with Winita Bartlett, who mostly did loads of uh, the Rockford Files. Uh, that's the thing they're most famous for. This is their only sci-fi script like they ever wrote. They weren't another Star Trek writer like uh, Gene Alcoon or anything like that. Uh, although they did write an episode of Spencer for Hire which of course featured Avery Brooks in one of the lead roles. Uh, but yeah, this is they're only sci-fi things, so it's, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Kind of like, you know. I was thinking, directed by Mark Daniels, who directed 15 episodes of Star Trek, the original series. So, obviously, an old Star Trek hand. So you can see why they've brought him in. So, essentially, this is the same setup, really, as Genesis 2. Same main character, Dylan Hunt. And actually, to me, this felt like just the second episode of Genesis 2. It doesn't actually feel to me, like another pilot, because unlike with Genesis 2 is all set up, like in terms of whereas yeah. here... They're not they, doing the setup again. No, no, they, they don't go like, oh, let's do the setup again. They go, let's take another run at this concept and this character. And literally they get the setup for the show out of the way in the opening titles and voiceover and go basically like, here it is. And it's similar right down to you get the tunnel uh, the tunnel system effect straight away and they look exactly the same as Genesis 2. So really, they just go, right, here's the concept, and then they go... And to me, this felt much more like uh, Firefly, where in Firefly they did the original two-part pilot, which the channel side was kind of too talky, too character-based, and ended up shifting it later in the season as like a flashback episode. And then they did another pilot, uh, I think it's called The Train Job, 
uh, which was basically just designed to just be an adventure with yeah. that crew and go, well, this works better as like an individual part to introduce you to the idea and the adventure. And this felt like that to me. Here's another adventure with these characters um, and here's the setup and that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you say you've got Dylan Hunt back, upgraded into John Saxon, uh, who I always knew as the dad from Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, I think, yeah, he is most famous for portraying Lieutenant Don Thompson, who's uh, Nancy's dad yep. in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. He's in quite a few of them. Yeah. Straight away, what an upgrade. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> literally. What John, a man. John Saxon, what a man's man. I mean, he literally is like, he's big and well, my, note, my, my like, notes yeah. here says he feels like the lost Star Trek captain. Yes. Because yeah, they've, just, they've, yeah, yeah. Made, they've made him so much more Kirk-like in both, like, well, his delivery in this is quite Kirky and he's much more of a jock. Yes, yeah, he is quite Kirk-like, isn't Which he? Which you're yeah. saying, because I guess Hunt is meant to be a jock, but we were like, that other guy. Yeah, he's a fucking nerd. Like, nerd yeah. of a massive Whereas, this, this guy, yeah, he feels, like you say, he feels very Kirk-like because he's like, big and like powerful and jock like and kind of like you know fucking he's, loves the ladies well um, in general I thought um, it lent way more into Star Trek stuff like with, with that casting and also the uniforms he does the sort of captain's log at the start there's, yeah. there's judo rolls it's almost like the, the network went cool cool yeah Genesis was alright but we like Star Trek and then it's like Roddenberry went okay I'm going to do it again I'm just going to carry on and crank up the Trek meter a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, this is much more Trek, isn't it? Almost to the point that I'm like, to be honest, because when you're, this is 1974, so you're kind of thinking like, is this what Star Trek Phase 2 would have been like? Mm. Because it, right down to the look and the costumes, I think it's quite reminiscent of what I have seen from like concept art for Star Trek Phase 2. And it does feel a bit like, you know, the story w- would totally slot into the original series. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is something which Gene comes back to <laughs> a lot. Have you got a kind of plot summation of this? Uh, well, obviously, so. you know, this is set in the same world as, as uh, Genesis 2. And then somewhere towards the start of this, this PAX team led by Hunt with uh, a, a variety of members, including uh, Isaiah, which was Ted Cassidy reprising his role from Genesis. Yeah, he's back. Yeah, which yeah. is Lurch, isn't it? From the Adams family. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he's the only returning cast member, isn't he? Yeah, from I think the so, first, yeah, yeah. yeah, to this. So yeah. they're trying to find a missing doctor who's the only surgeon who can perform a particular surgery in time. And their search leads them to the Confederacy of Ruth, a society of latter-day Amazons where women are dominant and men are enslaved. And these guys are they're referenced in Genesis 2, aren't they? As like another faction somewhere, I think. I think so, maybe. Yeah, yeah, but now, yeah. now it's now it's their time to shine. It's their episode, as you could say. And this is, again, as Futurama did, Amazon Women in the Mood. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is very Amazon Women in the Mood, yeah. They call their men dinks. Yes, they call them dinks. So yeah. yeah. But they're basically they're basically just Amazons, yeah. But the main one is called Mar. And she's played by uh, Diana Moldea, who played Dr. Pulowski in Next Generation, who was the replacement for Crusher for, like, season two. And then it goes back to being Crusher in season three. And everyone hates Pulowski. (laughs) Going, like, you know, he's just... But that is an interesting Star Trek connection. The same actor. She plays the main uh, woman here. And, yes, they get over to there pretty fast. I mean, it's pretty soon into the episode that they're heading towards uh, this thing, which is where they believe the Doctor has ended up. And, yeah, we're told that, basically, this is a a female-dominant society 
where they have basically the women are the ruling class and the men are the, like enslaved. Yes. And of course, old John Saxon as Dylan Hunt, because he is actually from the 70s, uh, <laughs> yeah. of course, like is just amazed by this. And he says, women's lib or women's lib gum. Uh, because I mean this is a concept that Gene's come back to a couple of times hasn't he because there is um, there's an episode of Star Trek the animated series where there is a kind of female race and they're making all the men weak do you remember that we did it in we did it in the um, Star Trek animated series episode with Elliot Fallows right yeah um, where literally all of the male crew get captured by the women, I think they like touch them. They make them really like weak and old, oh. and they're all like, "Oh!" And Uhura and the female crew have to save them. Yes, um, I yeah. I think he wanted to do maybe a Star Trek film based around a similar concept to Planet Earth as well. And uh, so, yeah, Roddenberry had a real kind of obsession with this idea uh, of women being too strong. <laughs> and like, uh, like you know, I need a man to step in. Yeah, and yeah. kind of like taking over and making men all like weak and scared. Yeah, and it's stuff this like really, that. Yeah. it's this really strange early seventies ideals about feminism that seems yes. to mostly come from Roddenberry himself. About you know, it's not equality at all. It's gone the other way, where it's like, oh yeah, now women are super super dominant, but then it always gets counteracted by. It ends up being men that fix stuff anyway, and it exposes the women as just being silly old women yes. anyway. And it's yeah. like, well, you're destroying your own like setup here. Well, it's always very much. It always has kind of like porn movie values, yep. where it's like the men have got to show the women like, oh yeah, I'll show you the ways of the man, and then they'll be <laughs> like seduced by that because what they set up here is the only female member of the team essentially has to go undercover as a woman who believes in female dominance. Uh, who is a Harper Smythe, played by Janet Margolin. And she, I've got to say, she is the worst undercover agent of all time <laughs> because she comes across uh, Dr. Pawlowski and basically she's got John Saxon tied up and she said, I've brought a male slave with me to prove I believe in female dominance. But then instantly cries in horror when Ma begins like whipping him. <laughs> she's like, no, don't do that. Don't. And then she gets like challenged for ownership of like Saxon and like just gets battered like instantly. <laughs> and what's really funny is um, when she first gets challenged for ownership, she's like, "Oh no, like you know, I, I he's he's mine. Uh, I don't want to fight." And Saxon goes like enthusiastically nods to her like, "No, no, I want to see you fight. I want to see the babes fight. Go on, <laughs> like yeah, get in the mud, Um And then she just gets like instantly battered. And he gets uh, taken away from her. Uh, so she's really, really, really shit at her job. And then he gets kind of enslaved. And there's all kinds of... There's very... It feels very Futurama and like he's Snoo like, Snoo. Yeah, he's like, like, please, like, death by Snoo Snoo. <laughs> yeah. Well, well one of my notes says she's going to fuck him to death. Well, they <laughs> literally say like, you know, could he be a new breeder? Like yeah, and they grab. She grabs him, grabs his face, and she's like, "No spirit, like, spirit to fuck me, they, they, fucking dink." They, they call them uh, vain, troublesome little seed carriers. Yeah, 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 and of course he comes across the other members of his team, including Lurch and the Adams family. And now suddenly they're really... The body is broken, but the spirit is willing. <laughs> they're suddenly really scared. Like, if you go up to them, they're like, ah! and you're like, what's the fuck's happened? It turns out 
they're being drugged by the women. So they drug them to like make them basically with like fear gas, scarecrow, fear gas to make them subservient, essentially like scared of their own shadow. Meanwhile, damn you types are back. <laughs> and, <laughs> and like, and they're coming, they're like women too strong we must crush them <laughs> and basically they've realized that the men are enslaved and subservient uh so they can come in and i mean even this is kind of like because the idea is very much oh they've made a mistake making the men uh subservient because it means other men or mutants in this case can come along and crush the because obviously the women can't protect themselves. Oh yeah, no. I think that's the idea. Whereas I was like, well, no, surely these women seem to be strong and almost like Amazonian. I'm like, can't they just protect themselves? Yeah. And that's the idea. Is oh no, 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 no. always need the men. Literally, you need the men, and you have fucked up by making the men weak. We'd be at full strength tomorrow sundown. Commander, a soldier, position units, one to attack each female household. They're males. They will not fight. No, commander, soldier. The woman do something which make men fear their own shadow. <laughs> Did you notice that the guy they're searching for is called John Connor? Yes, I did. I've got John Jonathan Garner. Yeah, yeah which is like yeah. John Garner, which is really, really weird. Uh, it's just his sci-fi it's, connection. It's so weird. There's a bit where I can't remember what Saxon as Hunt says, but at one point I think he tries to like explain how the gender politics worked from his time. And what he basically says is, oh, oh our wives were used to being sex slaves for us. <laughs> That's like the summation of what he's trying to like. Say. Well, there's a weird connection between this and Questor tapes a very odd kind of thread running through Roderick's work in 1974. Because in Questor tapes, when they go to the casino, um, Jerry Robertson's trying to explain to Questor uh, the relationship between men and women. And he's saying to him, oh, because there's lots of like men and women getting drunk. Mm. And he says, biology and booze, like basically is like the relationship to make men and women fuck. And then in this is a similar thing where Dylan Hunt seduces uh, Ma by getting her drunk, where he basically convinced her, oh yeah, we should have some booze together. And he's like, you've got to remember I'm from a different time, we've got to be balanced, everything like that. Like, you know, this is the way it works. Like, basically the woman gets drunk and then the man takes advantage, I see, and I'm like, oh shit. Some really, really dodgy kind of messages going down in planet Earth. And he basically convinces her around his way of thinking, doesn't he? Because he's like, forget Women's live, men's live. What about people's live? <laughs> it's very, very much like this kind of really reductive, like, hey, true equality yeah, is yeah, like, yeah. you know, us just being on the same level with everything. Doesn't matter that we've been in charge yeah. for all this year. I believe like, all lives matter. Yeah, it's, like, it's very all lives matter <laughs> is Saxon's kind of way of going around things. And basically, he finds out that, you know, they've been poisoning the men. and They're, they're gruel. They're gruel. They've been poisoning their gruel. And he gets... He teams up with the doctor because he finds him, John Connor. And they basically put the antidote in the gruel, don't they? So the yeah. men can fight back. Because then the mutos turn up. And then eventually, all the men start fighting back. 
and like it becomes uh, that's where it goes proper start because they're all doing proper leapy fighting aren't they yeah. all doing like flying kicks Whoa. in the air and stuff like that. I've got to say they make short work of like the mutos because the mutos look really like tough and not hard but they get absolutely bad like instantly and there's a big um when when Lurch the Adams family he smashes two mutants heads together and they do like a big like symbol crash and stuff where he does that <laughs> So yeah, that basically a big fight happens, and, and then it, the women are just like, "Yep, yeah, cool, yeah, we'll suspend our use of drugs on our males, yeah, and yeah. Uh, happily ever after." And basically, they the the insinuation is all the men are going to fuck babies into those women. <laughs> Literally, they all just go become mothers, and they go, "Men, they have their place." And like so, oh, yeah, well. so literally, the women have been taught their the women have been taught their place in life as. Breeders? I mean, well, that's, yeah. yeah, that's running all over, right? Like being fearful of women's influences and wanting to write them up and being these strong characters, but then going like, but no, now I must destroy them back down again. Yeah. What did they do to you, G? Yeah, yeah. So that is basically the end. Of it. So it's very much like a standalone adventure yeah. at the end of the day. Well, it even like, says, yeah. there's a line at the end where the voiceover goes, a new planet Earth, a thousand new adventures. This has been one of them, which is just a very desperate plea for another green light. Like, yes. This has yeah, been yeah. one of a thousand episodes, Well, this is please. out of all of the four, this is the one that stands alone as just an episode yep. of something, isn't it? Like the rest all feel like more individual kind of pilots for things, whereas, or just individual stories, whereas this does feel like, just, this just feels like, if you went, if you went, oh, this is like the fourth episode of Planet Earth, the series, you you wouldn't be like, oh no, that can't be right. You, you'd be like, oh yeah, it's just a random episode of this series. Um, I enjoyed this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is complete trash. It it's is my ridiculous. second favourite of the four. Yeah. And it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's not good, but it's so fucking funny. <laughs> oh, my God. It's just, it's literally ridiculous. It's so horribly dated. But Saxon is a good leading man. Yeah. I think he sells a lot of this. You know, I mean, he should have had his own Star Trek show. He should have been a captain. They should have done, like, Star Trek Phase 2 with him as a new Kirk-like captain. Because um, he would have been great. So much so that they, they tried to make this a third time as Strange New World in 1975, hmm. which was a third pilot for the kind of Pax story. Roddenberry wasn't involved in this one. And John Saxon is the lead again, but playing a different role. Uh, I mean, I presume it's basically Dylan Hunt, but just with a different name. Uh, maybe they just went, oh, we've had two failed pilots, Dylan Hunt. We've got to give him a new name. It's still the same story off the packs. But the important question is, are you green lighting Planet Earth for a series? Oh, almost ironically, yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no, because as funny as this was, I'm like, this is the one that most feels like it's just Star Trek. Yes. It's just Star Trek, the original series. This feels like probably is what Star Trek Phase 2 would have been like. Yeah. And I kind of think that shows that actually it's good that Star Trek Phase 2 never happened and the motion picture happened instead. Because I, you know what? I think this convinces me. It changes that, the tone going forward. Yeah. It? I think if Star Trek Phase 2 had happened, I think Star Trek doesn't exist now in the same way. 
True. I think Star Trek, the thing that turned it around was the movies. Because when Phase 2 would have reached an end, there would have been less favor to try and revive yeah. it a third time in movie yeah. form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because Next Generation only happens because the films. Because by the time Next Generation comes out, you've had the first four movies. Like, so it's obviously only happened because they've been, you know, once you get to Roth Khan, they've been big successes. So I I think the fact that phase two didn't happen is a really good thing. Yeah. And actually knowing what the other um episode treatments were for Genesis two, if they're essentially the same for this, then yeah, I I rescind yeah. my green light. <laughs> yeah, rescind yeah. <laughs> is now red light. Okay, so we're gonna move on to the final uh of these four quartet of uh Gene Roddenberry pilots, which is Spectre. First broadcast on the 21st of May, 1977. Written by Gene again and Samuel A. Peoples, who randomly wrote uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before, the second pilot for Mm. Star Trek, the original series. And he also wrote the pilot of the animated series, Beyond the Farthest Star. So, you know, he's, he's been there for the beginnings of a couple of Star Trek series up to this point. Uh, so you'd have thought he's a good person to have on board. Weirdly, the thing that he's sort of now, I guess, maybe most famous for is he was the creator of Lancer, which is the Western series, which they use in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, ah. Quentin Tarantino's uh, movie, that Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dalton is guest starring in. I mean, I've just had to put up with, I'm reading the Once Upon a Time Hollywood novelization at the moment, and there's multiple chapters that are just a, a novelization of, like, the Lancer episode that Rick Dalton is in, <laughs> and fucking hell, they're a slog. They're really wrong. The rest of the novel's pretty fun, but that is a bit of a slog. Uh, but, yeah, that's probably now something he will become famous for. Directed by Clive Donner. Uh, no relation to Dick, as far as I'm aware. Uh, but he did direct um, the George C. Scott uh, Christmas Carol adaptation, which I think that that's probably the thing he's most famous for now, because that does get screened on like every Christmas. Mm. I've, I've I've never seen the George C. Scott one, but I've seen bits of it just from turning on the TV at Christmas and seeing that. Uh, so he directed that. Uh, so this stars Robert Culp, who worked with Bill Cosby a lot. Uh, here, so yeah, it's like uh, starred with him in I Spy, the TV series, and Hickey and Boggs, which was like a 70s cop movie, uh, which was him and say so he big mates with Cosby. So I'm not sure, <laughs> not sure we can trust Culp. Also, stars John Hurt, yes, right. I was really surprised to see him turn up, and Gig Young, who plays Dr. Hamilton. Okay, I'm gonna tell you some things about him in a bit. Good or bad? Pretty bad. Oh, okay. Uh, have you got some details about what Spectre is about? Yeah, so this is, unlike the others, which are very much sci-fi shows, this is sort of a more supernatural cult horror story about the adventures of Sebastian and Hamilton. So this is this pairing of this criminologist and a cult expert and a physician and forensic pathologist as they visit the UK to investigate a case involving an aristocratic family. Uh, which includes John Hurt among its members. Come over here and it's a bit of a, almost like sort of campy, hammer horror style. Uh, Coming over here, investigating our occult goings on. ghosts alone. <laughs> yeah, it kind of devolves into fairly bog standard kind of supernatural cult worship mayhem. 
And yeah, this one's 98 minutes long. This one's uh, this one's a full full feature. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to find, because we watched this on YouTube. Um, you can track this down, along yeah. with uh, Genesis 2 and this are both available to watch on YouTube, presumably illegally, but, you know, whatever. And what is interesting about this one is it did actually get released in the UK as a theatrical feature film. Um, but when it did, they added in a bunch of additional sequences hmm. uh, into the film to kind of beef it up to kind of feature length, uh, which featured a lot of nudity. Now, there is nudity in this version that we watched, so I kind of presume this is the version that was released in cinemas because I was quite shocked there was nudity at all. Yeah. So I kind of... Because I don't think that would have flown on like network TV in America in those days. So like, I presume that this is the UK theatrical oh, yeah. release. I presume. Well, it says you know the version that's currently in TV syndication is a heavily edited version of the UK theatrical release, which uh, yeah has less explicit nudity in the Black Mass finale. Well, yeah, less because this. I mean, this had proper nudity in it, didn't it? Like proper, proper. I think so. Yeah, like literally, it mean, sounds like you were falling asleep. You only just watch it. Like, yeah, <laughs> literally. I've already like, um, purged it from my mind. You're too busy wanking. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> but I am pretty sure this did have proper new. I mean, maybe the actual, you know, UK proper release was like fucking Galigula or something. Like, yeah, it's like penthouse actresses in or something like that. But yeah, I was shocked. By there being even like you know any new see like in this at like this a, time in a mid seventies occult yeah 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 I was shocked by that so you sound like you did not enjoy this film no one of my first notes is what the fuck is this medieval shit <laughs> which is probably referring to the opening titles yeah it's very it's got some very dramatic voiceover at the start but I I initially did. Note, you know, finally, this isn't another sci-fi, at least. It's kind of these adventures of this criminologist. Um, and they lean very heavily into the sort of Holmes and Watson kind of dynamic between the two, which, again, I thought would have been... I mean, having done the Quest of Tape since then, that got a central pairing more right for me between yeah, Quest and Robinson. Yeah. Whereas these two are just two old dudes. Like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I feel I like this more than you, uh, just because... It was so different from everything else I've seen from Roddenberry. Yeah. So I think I was like instantly like, oh, this isn't what I was expecting at all. I think when I first heard the Spectre thing, I immediately leapt to like, oh, a spy. Like it'll be like a sci-fi yeah. spy. Oh, thing. it's Bond. Yeah, 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 yeah. The fact that it wasn't that at all, and it was this more uh, weird kind of like a cult, kind of more probably influenced uh, at the time by Alistair Crowley novels and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Um, but it goes pretty hard because you know yeah. this, um, the, this woman shows up near the start, claiming to be someone from that family, Anita Siron. She visits the visits the guys, and then they realise it's not her; it's a succubus. And they have this kind of very like cheapy Evil Dead style fight where they defeat her using like a the neck. We like burns her with like yeah. a massive book, doesn't he? Like yeah. shows on her and literally like burns her. And I was like, I've got to say, I was watching it. And the the opening like ten minutes, so it's very talky. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, eh, like you know, drifting off. And then suddenly, <laughs> Robert Colt's like, "Fuck you, bitch!" Like fucking like book on her. She's like burning. Ah! And I was like, "Holy shit!" I guess that's it, isn't it? It's shocking to see actual violence from a Roddenberry thing. You know, the whole, yes. Yeah. The yeah, whole yeah, Star yeah. Trek thing is very non-conflict, and this is suddenly like, no, burn, bitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was quite you know shocked by that. The score is very dodgy in this. 
Yes. Because the scores for the other ones, I think, you know, are kind of quite standard, but they have quite kind of, um, especially in Genesis 2, slightly Star Trek leanings. Yeah. Like they feel quite Star Trek-y, the scores, whereas this is just kind of a bit plinky-plonky. And well, yeah, I mean, I mean that music and, and coupled with just the whole way the show is kind of presented, it really gives it the Garth Marenghi's Dark Place vibes. Well, this is funny because I think, because obviously watching some YouTube, crappy quality... And I think this might have more to do with it being a shitty copy on YouTube mm. than the actual production because it's uh, had that kind of like piss yellow <laughs> colour quality. But I think that's it's a bad trick because this isn't like some Blu-ray transfer. Weird. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because the DOP of this show is a guy called Arthur Ibbotson because I was watching it and was actually going, oh, I think this is actually quite well filmed. In terms of like, but I just think it's really an awful copy. But I actually think the cinematography is quite impressive for like a TV production at that time. And I looked up the DOP and this guy, Arthur Ibbotson, he was a film cinematographer. He was the DOP for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, mm. the Gene Wilder one. Where Eagles Dare, the fucking great Clint Eastwood war yep. movie. Whistle Down the Wind, the Richard Attenborough film. And the Railway Children as well. And so those are those are visually striking films. Yeah, I think this guy knows what he's doing. I just think this is a really bad transfer. I think if we huh. get... He also did Babes in Toyland, the 1986 TV Christmas musical film starring Drew Barrymore and the young Keanu Reeves. Oh, wow. Which was also directed by Clive Donner. Oh, wow, interesting. But, like, I think if we get Spectre, the 4K like, transfer, re-release that it deserves, we will see the majestic work of Arthur Robinson <laughs> on screen. But, you know, I, I'm not sure that... Uh, is ready. <laughs> I'm not sure that petition will build up the same momentum as uh, our friend over at the Star Trek 4K Motion Picture Directors <laughs> Edition uh, Twitter did. But, you know, well, one day, right? maybe one day. Um, I thought it was very funny here because they go visit that woman who, like, because the whole thing is, like, a house has been, like, taken over by all these kind of, like, bad, bad voodoo. Like, you know, what what is it? What's what's happened in that house? Some demonic shit. Because there's loads of, like, beautiful women, like, kind of wandering about, isn't there? And there's a a woman who goes, who's the real Anita, who was the the woman at the beginning, the succubus at the beginning that killed the book. This she's, is the one they she she was meant to be. She's really funny because this is uh yeah Anne Bell. Um, yes, just, it looks a lot like Gwyneth Paltrow in this. But there's a line when they're chatting to her for the first time, like the real yeah. her, and she says, "Did you see me there?" And they go, "Yeah." And she goes, "Was I pretty desirable?" And they go, "Yeah." And she goes, "So it's obvious, you see, you saw someone quite different." She just, I'm an ugly mess. She that's says. the thing. She just keeps going. God, I'm so fucking ugly. In a because there is all these like women walking around all the time, and she's like, "Oh, I'm in amongst all these fucking hotties. You don't even notice me." <laughs> like, and it's like she's just a totally pleasant, normal looking yeah. woman. And Doctor Hamilton is coming on really strong, be like, "Oh no, I think you're very attractive." <laughs> like and she's like, "I'm basically the elephant man." Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk about Hamilton, there's a very funny scene with him and a bunch of dominatrixes in it, which is like, again, like this is very, all the sexy stuff here feels very Roddenberry. Like, yeah. I think. Is it, is it him that wakes up in the waterbed with a lady? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so like dominatrix and stuff. I, I think Roddenberry has some odd, odd ideas, to be honest. Mm. But yeah, it's, like you say, Sebastian Hamilton, 
very reminiscent of Holmes and Watson in terms of the way they they are with each other and their relationship. Yep, and um, a um, Spock Bones relationship. With yeah, them. yeah, a bit of a oh yeah, because one of them Spock even Bones. one of them even says fascinating at one point. Yes, yeah. I mean, I definitely enjoyed this more than you. Yeah. I think it is total trash, <laughs> uh, but in a sort of like at least interesting. I think just even the uh, English setting kind of made it different. Yeah. Oh, weirdly, in the Questor takes there's a whole sequence where they meant to go to London. I'm not 100% convinced they went to London to No, it's very soundstage. Yeah, it? well, there is one scene which is out in like a park or so, but like, that could be Second anywhere. Year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not, it seems weird. So I don't know whether Roddenberry was a bit of an Anglophile or something, or maybe even lived here. I don't know. But like, um, it seemed weird that this was even like intended to be an American show because it seemed more like a British. Yeah. Program like yeah, but I but yeah, what's first broadcast in America? Because yeah, if this had been picked up, would they have just gone? All right, well now we do just have to shoot an entire series in the UK. Yeah, because that's what they did do for this. Yeah, because it it was shot in the UK. This yeah, wasn't it? yeah, it was actually it was shot, shot at Elstree. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's yeah. just like yeah, this this would have been a fully made in the UK show, but it's a bit America. like um, uh, do you remember when for years Joss Whedon was going to make a Giles spinoff? Was he? And it was going to be in collaboration with the BBC. So it was actually going to be a proper British production. And he wanted to do it like an old BBC show and do it as like a kind of ghost stories and stuff like that with Giles. And it never quite got off the ground because it was still in that weird time where in the UK, sci-fi, fantasy was our bad word. Basically before Doctor Who, people forget about this, before Doctor Who came back in 2005, for that period between Doctor Who getting cancelled in 1989 and it coming back in 2005 and being a big hit, like sci-fi fantasy is a bad word in uh, Britain. Like we've got all the American imports, but apart from that, in terms of like... It's like, we can't do this. Yeah, British sci-fi shows, they're relegated to either uh, Kids TV, CBBC and CITV. Yeah. Uh, where you get things like Demon Headmaster and yeah. stuff like that. Or... Go to Blue Alert. What for? There's no one too alert. We're all here. I would just feel more comfortable if I know that we're all on our toes because everyone's aware it's a Blue Alert situation. We all are on our toes. May I remind you of Space Corps Directive 34124? 34124. No officer with false teeth should attempt oral sex in zero gravity. What I was going to tell you yes. about Gig Young, who played Dr. Hamilton, this, right? In reality, he was married five times. Five times. you think you'd give up, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, but basically, three weeks after marrying his fifth wife in 1978, so only the year after this happened, him and his wife both found dead in their apartment. Oh. Police surmised that he'd killed his wife and then himself. Oh, my God. It's pretty shocking, isn't it? Like, yeah, literally. Like, I was like, that feels weird that we're watching him in this be this kind of eccentric, quirky professor, like, with dominatrix and stuff, and then a year later, he's murdering his wife and then killing himself. This is Gig Young. Yeah, Gig Young. He played Dr. Hamilton. Christ. Pretty fucking crazy. Um, so, Matt. Yes. Are you green-lighting this show? You know what, I think this has more potential than the others, because as we've said, it's not just another straight-up Trek retread, it's not sci-fi, there's something new. 
But on the basis of what I've seen, I've got to say no. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, probably for the rest, because they would have had to, literally, one season in, they had to recast Kiki. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have minded seeing more of this. I'd be interested to see where it would have taken Rodri's career, just because it would have been in a different direction. Maybe he was steered away from sci-fi after this and gone, done different types of things. So I think that could have been interesting. So, yeah, I yeah, I think I might have greenlit this, to be honest. Like, gone, yeah, yeah, see some more fucking crazy occult goings-on with these guys in, like, the British countryside. Yeah, it's weird. Like, I kind of looked at this, because we had so many Futurama comparisons of Planet Earth, I was like, this is almost like the disenchantment to Star Trek's Futurama. Yes. Like, this yeah, is yeah. the one uh, in the past, or, or at least present day, but dealing with occulty old stuff as opposed to anything future-based. But, yeah, it's nice to see... Young John Hurt, well, I say young, two years before Alien. Well, yeah, no, I mean, obviously, this is weirdly, this is years after, like, Tim Rillington plays. Yeah, yeah. And stuff like that, which, of course, he's in. He turns into a crazy crocodile man in the finale. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I forgot all about that. Yeah, he turns it. there's a mental kind of crocodile man. Because, yeah, it turns uh, out he's the one who's been dead and replaced by the demon all along or something. Like, Yeah, yeah, that's pretty goes, mad, the whole nuts. crocodile man costume. Uh, I think in the UK theatrical release the poster was very much concentrating on the big crocodile man. Then people would see it and be very disappointed. Um, so, Matt, let's yeah. rank these four pilots. Okay. Okay, what, what is your ranking going to be? From the bottom up? Yeah. <sighs> you know what? Genesis 2 at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Okay, so both Genesis 2 at the because bottom. Because the certain things you could do better with that, they do when we've seen it with planet Earth. Okay. Um, so it's completely redundant now. Okay. Number three. Spectre. You know what I'm going to agree as well. Okay. I'm going to agree as well. Spectre three, yeah. So then Planet Earth. Yeah, I'm going to agree. I mean, the thing with Planet Earth <laughs> is, I've got to say, Planet Earth is not good. No. Like, Spectre has a, a you know, had a shot at being the number yeah. two. I think Spectre really, in many ways, as a pilot, is probably the more interesting one. But... Yeah. In, if you're talking enjoyability, <laughs> yeah. Planet Earth, yeah. get some drinks in for yeah, Planet yeah. Earth, you can have a good time. <laughs> it's like what you said, Planet Earth is just an episode. Yes. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So number one quest. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Number one quest. I think out of all of them, that's the one that not only is the best individual film, yeah. but is also the best in terms of, oh, that potentially becomes an interesting series. Yeah, yeah I think it's got the best, kind of most interesting characters and concept and you know obviously later went on to influence data i kind of feel like if you basically want a data spin-off uh with, with slight robocop vibes as well like <laughs> yeah. getting like you know i think this one obviously you can't kill and everything like that like you know this is the one for you yep it's a bit frankenstein-y as well yeah so after this Gene just goes all in on star trek again because obviously star trek motion picture he's very involved in and although he sort of gets spurned for some of the later films, he is heavily involved in Star Trek Next Generation uh, when that gets going. And then he dies in early 90s, 1991, I think. So literally, he never really gets another chance to try and concentrate on something outside of Star Trek. Uh, it gets very, very busy. And one of these uh, things, after he passed away, that's when you actually get a few successful Gene Roddenberry series other than Star Trek. Weirdly, you had to wait until he died. 
Uh, because first of all, we get Earth Final Conflict in 1997, uh, which was based on ideas that he developed in like the 70s uh, for a film called Battleground Earth. And basically the name was changed to stop comparisons of Battlefield Earth. But Margell Barrett, his widow, uh, basically shepherded it into production. And that ended up becoming a big hit. Five seasons at round four. And I believe it was critically reasonably well received. I remember it being, uh, I remember buying an issue of SFX magazine back in like 1999 or something. Mm. That had a like top 50 sci-fi shows of all time in it. It would be fascinating to do a, them do a top 50 now and see how much it's changed in the last 20 years with the, because not only we've seen so many more TV and so much more sci-fi TV since then. Uh, but at that point, a final conflict, I think, got in about like number 39, 37, something like that. So, you know, it was obviously well-respected and was successful enough to make them go, well, we've got other Gene Roddenberry ideas lying around. And they made Andromeda, uh, which also ran for five seasons from 2000 to 2005, uh, with Kevin Sorbo playing the role of Dylan Hunt. You just can't keep a good Dylan Hunt down. Or Dylan Cunt, as portrayed by Kevin Sorbo, as we all know he's a fucking dick. I would have thought he would be well down with the retrograde values of Planet (laughs) Earth as well. So, you know. Uh, But that was a big success as well. Yeah, they both ran for five seasons. So, in the end, Gene's ideas made good, basically. Um, So, I think at some point, we'll probably have to do another episode, maybe for our 200th podcast, We'll come back and do an episode on Earth Final Conflict and Andromeda, uh, the kind of two series that actually end up being mm. a success. Because they are literally called, I think, like Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, kind of Gene Roddenberry's Earth Final Conflict, kind of thing, like, you know, and see what they're see what they're about. And then for our three hundredth episode, we do a seance and speak to Gene himself <laughs> and get his views on all new Treks. Yeah, Would yeah, he... yeah. I mean, I'd be fascinated to hear what he has to say. He'd be like, well, "Wow, all this Trek on TV at the same time, I love it." And also, hmm, <laughs> would he? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure he'd be down with. I mean, I think first of all, I think you say too many women on the bridge. <laughs> like, yeah, first of all, get them off, get them back in their place. And I don't think he'd like all of the uh, crying on Discovery. <laughs> I mean, he'd be like, no, he said, he, he'll, he'd be like, have they been, have they been getting poisoned by the Amazon women? <laughs> kind of like, yeah. But yeah, uh, so this was a really interesting journey through these Roddenberry pilots to see another path, another life that Gene could have gone off on creatively if any of these had actually been successful. But I have to be honest, as enjoyable as Questor Tapes was, I don't think any of these have the kind of legs that Star Trek has as a concept, in all honesty. No. No, no. It would have been an interesting uh, splinter timeline to see what would be going on if any of these had been picked up instead. Because, yeah, would they have even done Trek movies if he had had another smash hit on his hands from one of these running into the late 70s? Yeah, or would we have been seeing, like, you know, a Planet Earth movie or, like, you know... (laughs) Like, like, yeah, yeah. Star Trek just became like his first draft for TV of what he did early in his career. Yeah, and yeah, now we're yeah. living in the golden age of Planet Earth PAX content. Well, it especially feels weird as Andromeda in the end, which is PAX again and Dylan Hunt again, did end up becoming a success. So it's like eventually that did happen. So it could have happened. And then that could have stopped him going back 
to Star Trek. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. But, yeah, I think in a war, say, everything worked out for the best. Yeah. Because I think what would have been interesting is if we, as, you know, we do view things from the non trek perspective, had actually loved one of these pilots and been like, oh, yeah, should have fucking done this instead of Star Trek. Go then, you know, but obviously that, that did not happen. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, thank you so much for joining us for our 100th podcast. It's been amazing. We've drunk a bottle of bubbles uh, while talking about these uh, pilots. And it's just been really, really nice to reach this point. And now, you know, there's a hundred podcasts to go back and listen to. If you've, you know, joined us for this episode, and maybe this is your first episode, I don't know, maybe you've gone right. Now they're covering Questor tapes, I'm in. You know, there's a hundred podcasts to go back and listen to. Yeah. So A new spotlight. A thousand new adventures. This has been one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Out of all of us, Paul likes this film the best. Yeah. Even then, it's only a seven, so it's not that great. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there are better things to come. I am sure of it. <laughs> yeah. And we will see <laughs> them worse to come. next week <laughs> with Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which is definitively better. Uh, I think we can decide that now. <laughs> uh, all the listeners yeah. know anyone who's a Trekkie is going to agree with us. Rotham Khan is infinitely superior, but we'll chat about it more next time. So, exciting times. I'm sure you're on 10 Yeah, thank, you, real, thank real you for tuning back. in to Spotlight. I've been Paul Wilson. I've been Liam Dempsey. I've been Matt Brothers. All right, Bye. see you on the flip side. Bye.